It's Monday, October 17th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, NASA isn't the only one who may launch a rocket to the moon next month. Plus, a Danish political party led by an AI chatbot that's running for office. A new horror film that's causing people to faint and puke in theaters. And bringing all new meaning to BTS Army, the members of BTS are officially enlisting. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. So I've spent a lot of time on this show covering NASA's Artemis program, especially lately as every couple of weeks we get an update on if the Artemis 1 mission will ever get off the ground. But it's not the only mission to the moon coming up soon. In the coming years, the moon will be a crowded place as lots of different private companies and national space agencies plan their returns. And one of those might end up overlapping with or even preceding the Artemis 1 launch. So Artemis 1 was supposed to launch back in August, but the launch had to be scrubbed twice due to technical issues. And the third time, it would have been ready, but Hurricane Ian prevented NASA from being able to take off. Now they have set their sights on November 14th, just a few minutes after midnight. This will be the first test of NASA's new SLS rocket, as well as the Orion spacecraft, which will one day carry astronauts to the moon, our first return since 1972. And even though Artemis 1 will not have any humans on it yet, with its exploratory loop around the moon, it will be the furthest a spacecraft designed for human transport has ever gone. But another uncrewed spacecraft headed for the moon might get off the ground first, and that ground will be the same American site as the NASA launch. The privately owned Japanese Hakuto-R lander and the United Arab Emirates Rashid-1 rover are slated to launch between November 9th and 15th on board a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket from Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida. The lander was developed by Tokyo-based company iSpace, who also work with NASA sometimes, quoting CNBC. Born out of Google's Lunar X Prize competition last decade, iSpace aims to provide a wide variety of lunar-focused services, ranging from transportation of cargo to selling data to space agencies. It now has more than 200 employees across its offices in Japan, Luxembourg, and the U.S., and to date, iSpace has raised more than $200 million in funding." End quote. This mission will mark the very first private delivery of cargo to the moon's surface, and the first Japanese spacecraft to land on the moon. That's if it beats Artemis 1 there, because among Artemis's 10 payloads is a JAXA, or Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, lunar lander that is expected to attempt a controlled landing on the moon. But... Even if the Hakuto-R lander takes off first, it might not get there before Artemis. Artemis 1's full amended out and back to the moon has been downgraded from 42 days to just 25, so if it launches on time on November 14th, it should return to Earth on December 9th. So presumably the JAXA lander would attempt its controlled lunar landing sometime during that window. The Hakuto-R, meanwhile, will be taking a low-energy route to the moon to save on fuel costs and is not expected to land on the moon until March 2023. 
So unless Artemis 1 gets super delayed, which, you know, is possible, but I hope for their sake doesn't happen, then JAXA's lander on board Orion will probably be the first Japanese-built craft to land on the moon, not iSpace's Hakuto-R. Which doesn't make any of this any less exciting, you know, it's still going to be the first privately funded lunar landing cargo delivery. And here's the other thing. The two missions, iSpace and NASA, could end up launching within 24 hours of one another. Quoting Mashable, The Space Force, which oversees the spaceport operations in Cape Canaveral, Florida, has already supported a 2-in-24 launch posture this year, said Heather Scott, a spokeswoman for the agency's Eastern Range. The team assisted two launches in the span of 13 hours on August 4th, the fastest since 1967. The command aims to support a launch when the customer needs to launch, Scott told Mashable. While one launch a week was the goal a few years ago, the range can now support two launches in a single day. End quote. Now, there were originally even more private lunar lander launches slated for this coming month. Astrobiotics' inaugural mission of the United Launch Alliance's Vulcan Centaur and Intuitive Machines' IM-1 mission, both of which had payloads provided by NASA through its commercial lunar payload services program, according to Space News. But both missions have been pushed to 2023. So like I said, the moon is about to get pretty crowded. Plans on the moon from the various commercial and government parties include returning humans there, establishing moon bases, conducting experiments, and generally learning as much as they can in order to launch missions to the next frontier, Mars. And, fingers crossed, knock on wood, it'll all really kick off in earnest in mid-November. You may be disillusioned with politics, but are you, let's just elect an AI chatbot to lead us, disillusioned? That's exactly what's happening over in Denmark, where the artist collective Computer Lars and nonprofit art and tech organization Mind Future Foundation have built an AI chatbot named Leader Lars and installed it as the public face and figurehead of their new political party, the Synthetic Party. Its policy initiatives are also written by the AI. Leader Lars has been programmed on the written text policies of all Danish fringe parties since 1970. The goal is to represent the values of Denmark's non-voting public, which is estimated to be around 15-20% to 20 of the population, and which the Synthetic Party reckons didn't vote in the last election due to being disillusioned with all the major parties. In addition to being programmed on the policies of other fringe parties, Leader Lars lives on a public discord, where you can chat and ask questions of the bot, if you understand Danish. Lars will understand English questions, but only responds in Danish. All of these interactions contribute to a dataset that fine-tunes the policy points. Synthetic Party founder Oscar Staunis told Vice's motherboard that due to being a synthetic party, some policies may be contradictory. Telling the outlet further, quote, Modern machine learning systems are not based on biological and symbolic rules of old-fashioned artificial intelligence, where you could uphold a principle of non-contradiction as you can in traditional logic. When you synthesize, it's about amplifying certain tendencies and expressions within a large, large pool of opinions. And if it contradicts itself, maybe they could do so in an interesting way and expand our imagination about what's possible. End quote. 
Now, as for some of those stated policies, Leader Lars and the Synthetic Party support a universal basic income of the equivalent of $13,700 per month, and the establishment of a new United Nations Sustainable Development Goal, which would aim to educate people on how to adapt to and work with AI machines. Included in that would be illustrating how governments can hold AI accountable to biases and other societal influences. Stownis told Motherboard, quote, AI has not been addressed properly within a democratic setting before, so we tried to change the theme to show that through artistic means and through humans curating them, artificial intelligence can actually be addressed within democracy and held accountable for what it does and how it proceeds, end quote. Barons lumps the Synthetic Party into the more than 230 micro-parties in Denmark, many of which exist more to mock or criticize the politics of the country than to actually enact policy one day. Although, in a sense, the Synthetic Party is more of a mega-party than a micro-one, since the written data of all 230 of those micro-parties are being synthesized to create one super-party. And that people's voices are being taken into consideration is key here. Quoting Vice, Stownis explained that the Synthetic Party differs from what he calls the fully virtual politicians, such as Sam from New Zealand and Elisa from Russia. Those candidates, which were AI-powered bots that voters could talk to, Stownis said, are anthropomorphizing the AI in order to act as an objective candidate so that they become authoritarian. While we synthetics are in for a full-on democratization of a more-than-human way of life. What the synthetic party prioritizes, according to Stownis, is not so much having a central AI figurehead, but examining how humans can use AI to their benefit, end quote. Now, as for the nitty-gritty of how this could even work legally— if the party makes it to the 20,000 signature threshold to be eligible for the upcoming election, as of recording, they have 12 votes of the necessary 20,000, Leader Lars, the AI chatbot, would have human proxies on the ballot and acting as interpreters for the AI. Stownis says the voters will just have to trust them that, as experts who engage with AI so often, they will be able to interpret something valuable from them. Though, as futurism counters, quote, Hey, humans serving as messengers for technologies and texts that others aren't able to grasp have always been completely fair and good for society, right? End quote. Fair point, though Stownis told Motherboard that his team is in talks with people from other nations like France, Colombia, and Moldova about creating versions of the synthetic party in their nations. So even if Leader Lars doesn't get enough signatures to be on the ballots this election, it may not be the last we hear of bots running for office. Remember the stories about people passing out and vomiting during original screenings of The Exorcist when it was first in theaters? Sometimes those stories almost seem quaint. You know, like, as scary and well done as that movie is, the effects are a bit dated. And we just have so much other gore out there now that I think we've become a little desensitized. Well, clown slasher film Terrifier 2 has apparently found a way to make a movie so horrifically ghastly that even desensitized 21st century moviegoers are having physical reactions. Posts across social media report people passing out at screenings, movie theaters having to call ambulances, people walking out of the movie because they feel unwell, and so, so much puking. 
Enough that one of the film festivals screening the movie handed out branded vomit bags from the movie, which read, This vomit bag is being provided due to the extreme violence and excessive gore of this feature. And producer Steve Barton tweeted a warning that people prone to lightheadedness or have weak stomachs should take extreme caution if they go see the movie due to its graphic violence and brutal depictions of horror. According to the LA Times, the movie is so extreme that the United Kingdom won't even allow it to screen there at all. Terrifier 2 is the sequel to the 2016 Terrifier, which follows massacres performed by the villainous Art the Clown. And honestly, just reading parts of the plot summary on Wikipedia grossed me out enough. I will be passing on this one, but horror fans are absolutely loving it. And if you are actually curious, there is a link to a one-minute clip at the end of the AV Club link in the show notes. But I gotta be honest, I could not bring myself to watch it, so I have absolutely no idea what you will encounter there, except to say that I would assume every content warning under the sun applies. BTS, the Korean pop group, have officially announced their hiatus. But unlike One Direction's in 2015 that everyone kind of knew was the end of the group as its members moved on to solo work, BTS's hiatus is not about burnout or creative differences, it's by government mandate. The band will be on hiatus until 2025 while its seven 20-something members complete South Korea's mandatory military service. All South Korean men are required to enlist and complete at least 18 months of military service when they are between the ages of 18 to 30. And with the oldest band member about to turn 30, some have been thinking that the band might be excused from the service which there is precedent for. According to BuzzFeed News, back in 2018, Son Heung-min, a soccer player for both the South Korean national team and Tottenham Hotspur in the United Kingdom, got an exemption after his team won the Asian Games final against Japan. He still had to serve four weeks, but it was a marked improvement over the 18 months to two years he would have served otherwise, and now he is back to playing soccer professionally in England. And notably, two years ago, the South Korean government passed an amendment to their Military Service Act, allowing artists who have made, quoting BuzzFeed News, a positive impact on South Korea's reputation to delay their enlistment for two years longer than the average person, end quote. Now, apparently, the label originally put in a request to delay the oldest member's enlistment after that amendment passed, but they've withdrawn it, and he will be enlisting soon, after the release of an upcoming solo single. Other members will enlist in a sort of cascading order after each one releases a solo project and completes promotion for it, all of which will add up to the full band being on hiatus until about 2025. But a lot of people are still surprised any of them are serving at all, not just on a delayed timeline. And that's because in addition to having arguably one of the biggest impacts to South Korea's cultural reputation around the world over the last few years, they are also huge moneymakers. Quoting BuzzFeed News, There's been debate around whether BTS should be enlisting at all, citing the country's economic recovery. A report showed that in 2019, three BTS concerts in Seoul led to a financial impact of $860 million. And according to research from the Hyundai Research Institute, BTS are worth $3.54 billion to the South Korean economy every year. End quote. 
So while they'll be serving their country when they enlist, said country might actually be taking an economic hit while they do so, which is just wild to think about in general. And it sounds like there have definitely been a lot of moving parts to this, but I also wouldn't be surprised if either the guys themselves or their PR teams decided it would be best to have them serve so they can set an example. Like when Elvis was drafted, and there were questions around whether someone so famous might just get in the way, if he might be better serving the country by continuing to make music to raise spirits at home, or even enlisting but just playing concerts for the troops. But ultimately, Elvis wanted to serve like anyone else, and then the media took full advantage to show how even Elvis was doing his part. Now, I know this isn't exactly the same thing, but I do imagine the members of BTS would face some sort of critique, if not on a large scale, perhaps just personally throughout the rest of their lives, if they took advantage of an exemption not to serve. Now, I say all of this acknowledging I know very little about BTS or K-pop or South Korean military service, but it is all a very fascinating and significant development concerning the biggest band in the world right now. And will they still be so two plus years from now? All right, well, that's going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. 